All right, another episode of Are You a Robot? Let's hear a quick intro before we get into this. My name is Adam Yasmin. I'm a certified digital wellness educator and speaker and coach, a former UX designer based here in Los Angeles. And I'm also a podcast host myself. I host a show called Wabi Sabi, which is a long form, uh, deep conversation series. Um, that ponders about life through the lens of imperfection. And my last superpower is that I am a slow tea uh, facilitator, wizard, and practitioner. Um, slow tea is something that's been really uh, meaningful uh, to me, not only as an individual, but uh, as a means of tapping into innate humanity. Um, so we can talk about that as well. But that is my very brief and truncated uh, introduction. So in case this is your first time to Are You a Robot? This is a series where we aim to explore some of the greatest questions surrounding AI and related technologies. Today, it's a very special one because we are focusing on the related technologies piece heavily. We're talking with Adam about digital well-being, or as he likes to refer to it, digital resilience. And in case you don't know what we're doing on this series, we're trying to gather some of the best and brightest minds in their respective fields to come on here and talk to me about how they see the state of the world, if there's any best practices that we can take away and learn from as a community. Speaking of communities. We have an incredible Slack community right now that you can find a link to in the description below. I encourage you, if you like anything that is being said in this conversation, jump into that community, introduce yourself, let us know what you're working on and how you feel about the state of the world, especially with respect to AI ethics, AI governance, data governance, or just technology in general. We'd love to hear from you. So feel free to click the link below and come say hi. Now, the last thing I will mention before we jump into the full episode is that We've got an incredible sponsor for this series. Ethics Grade is a, an ESG ratings company, and they are rating companies on the non-financial impact they are making in the world. So more specifically, what I really enjoy about Ethics Grade is they're rating the companies on AI ethics programs. So that means that you can go to the Ethics Grade website and you can download scorecards that rate these different big companies and small companies, even startups are on there, on a few different factors. You have things like data governance and you have um, the way that they architect their AI ethics programs, which I really care deeply about. And so you can see, is this company actually walking the talk? They've gone through and they've grabbed a bunch of data from all over the world, all over the digital world, and they've come up with the scores. And so check out the scorecards. You can see what companies are actually doing what they say they're doing. And you may be surprised at some of the results and some of the scorecards. Again, if you want to check them out, 
The link is in the description below, or you can just go to ethicsgrade.io, download some scorecards, see what companies like Facebook and Twitter and Clubhouse even, or Toyota, Tesla, all these different companies. They've got United Airlines on there or Lufthansa. All these different companies, what is their rating? What is their scorecard when it comes to their AI ethics program and much more? But for me, I love the AI ethics programs and I love to see what is behind the curtain. All right, that's it. I've blabbed enough about ethics grade. Please check them out. And without further ado, let's get into it with Adam. Are you a robot? Adam, welcome to the show. And this is very exciting for me. I feel like we're kindred spirits and I look forward to talking to you about everything that we have planned to talk about today. The thing that I wanted to point out before we even start is I'm also here with my tea. I know I just saw you take a sip of your tea. So cheers to you, my man. It is great to have you on here. And Salut. Oh, is yeah. it? Is it Prost? <laughs> yeah, Prost. <laughs> Where I'm at right now drinking? these days. Uh, I have a rooibos, a vanilla rooibos that I got from a local shop around here. I live in a town of like 100 people and about 20 minutes down the road, there is a tea shop that sells loose leaf tea. And they've got a nice, a few nice blends and I go in there and stock up every once in a while. And so this one, but I do rooibos with uh, oat milk which I think might be nice. sacrilegious for some people who are really into tea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, con considering, you know, like there's, what is it? There is, there, there is an infinitesimal uh, amount of ways. Infin no, I mean, inf there's an infinite. Oh my there we go. Yeah. Clearly I need to drink more caffeine. There's an <laughs> infinite amount of ways to not only enjoy Tea, but I mean, just the fact that we as a society or as a modern society have, we've turned tea into a verb, right? So rooibos, which isn't tea leaf, isn't Camellia sinensis, it's honeybush, right? Native to South Africa. Um, but we've, we've verbalized the word tea. So if we say I'm having tea, it's I'm having a hot beverage that I'm steeping with, with boiling water, right? Or a hot herb. Mm -hmm. So it's fun that we've we've uh, transformed the term tea in that sense, and that there's no—I don't think there's any wrong way or wrong time. Uh, I think everything is is important to 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 notate the set and setting mm. or the intention of like rooibos with oat milk. In the same way, I drink a lot of yerba mate, which is a mm -hmm. you know South American um, popular alternative to coffee because i can't really touch any coffee it's so it immediately gives me a panic attack mm -hmm. just the type of caffeine but i love mate but i don't like drinking mate in the traditional style oh, i was gonna ask because it you doesn't have the whole taste good to me i don't i don't do the gourd with the bombija though i love the idea uh behind it and the fact that it is a communal and kind of a, a very Ritual. ritualistic yeah um, way of drinking together, but you know, I brew my mate in my French press, and I'll sometimes also make a latte out of it with oat milk and maybe a drop of honey, and that that 
too, is probably totally sacrilegious <laughs> yeah, to the, the fervent mate drinkers. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the good thing is, there's no rules in tea drinking. So exactly. We get to just do what we like. And if we enjoy it, we go for it. Now, as much as I would love to talk to you for the next hour about tea, I know we came here <laughs> to dive into the digital well being and really look at how this last year has been for many of us a drastic change. And even before that, just I, you know, I remember when I moved to Spain in 2010, smartphones still had not become a thing there. And so I left the US where smartphones were a thing, very much a thing. And then I went to Spain and they weren't yet. So you didn't have people that were walking around with their smartphones, looking at their smartphones as they would walk into traffic or cross the street or whatever. And then I watched that catch up. And by like 2011, 2012, it became normal to have that everyone had a smartphone and that we were looking at them and spending more time on them. So instantly, when I think about digital well-being, I remember that time pre-smartphone. And then I remember, or I, I think about now and where we're at and how it is becoming a struggle, or for some of us, it is a struggle to unglue ourselves to technology. Uh, and so there's that whole piece. But I realized also that normally I, I start out by asking, like, how did you even get into this? And maybe you can mm -hmm. give me a background on, on yourself and you went from this UX designer and then now you're focused on this. Yeah, and, and that is really the, you know, that is, I'd say the primary way or the primary portal by which I've entered into this world of, you know, uh, there, it isn't even one term, digital well-being, digital wellness, digital habits. I like to play with the terminology. I, I've lately been referring to it as digital resilience. Just as a means of being able to communicate this sort of broad, uh, the broad journey of wellness, right? I feel like the word wellness, first of all, here in the States, the word wellness has been diminished, I don't know what's the right word, or just sort of de, it, it's been, I don't want to say devalued. It's become a caricature of itself in, in, a, in, a, in a way, just in the same way that people in the media, uh, you know, make fun of, what's her name? Gwyneth Paltrow and her, her wellness uh, platform, Goop. In the same way that people, you know, will mm -hmm. kind of poke at that, at you know, and, and sort of through the lens of ridicule, you know, the word wellness is, uh, it has a lot of pretense, you know, it feels like a pretentious and intimidating word, only so-and-so kind of people, certain demographic, certain um, income bracket, you know, certain upbringing can, can afford to deal with wellness. <clears throat> and so um, it's ironic <laughs> to to be using the term digital wellness because um, <clears throat> when you really take a step back and see the scope of the issues, I mean, it really affects everyone. I mean, all of society, 
doesn't matter your age, demographic, race, belief, background, borders. I mean, it's affecting, as you, you know, as you mentioned, it affects the whole world. So um, perhaps pre-pandemic, it was more of a niche term in, um, within, the, within the field of, let's say, employee or corporate wellness, right? If you had a, a startup or an enterprise level um, organization that had an HR budget big enough to focus on employee wellness, then perhaps digital wellness um, was a part of that offering. So just a quick, really quick baseline, you know, foundation, the term digital wellness uh, is defined as the optimal state of well-being that each individual using technology is capable of achieving. Now, even that term, excuse me, even that definition, like, is a bit, I don't want to say vague, but it's its kind of a bit of a catch-all. And it doesn't really feel uh, like a, it's hard to kind of really um, feel into that definition. And so I really like um, focusing on stories. And so just to, just to answer your question, you know, how did I get into this? I got into this through several weaving through weaving you know several fabrics together but the the main uh, portal was through ux design because uh, i was a freelance ux designer i came out of the general assembly community which is also rather kind of a global community of uh, designers um, uh, data scientists and and um, web builders product managers, um, and <clears throat> I became a UX designer in the summer of 2015 in parallel with becoming a first-time parent here in Los Angeles. And what I experienced qu rather quickly um, was this, <laughs> this field, this marketplace, this this goal, I was part of this gold rush of people pivoting careers into UX design um, on the promise of a work-life balance, you know, um, you know, good salary, um, paid time off, time with family, you know, all these startups were luring people in with like, take unlimited paid time off. It's such an abstract concept, <laughs> especially now in a pandemic, but um, but I remained a freelancer because I wanted to experience, you know, working with different startups and agencies. And, and I just wanted to get my feet wet, you know, just through the, through the lens of being a junior designer at the time. And again, being in the freelance world, I also quickly realized, you know, what this sort of, um, uh, it's a rather dark place uh, to be in as a freelancer. You know, I guess no matter where you are in the world, the whole feast of famine stereotype is very real. Um, but, you know, the most important part of this backstory, without going into a rant about it, is that I recognized from my own kind of inner compass that the gigs I was getting hired to do, uh, the contracts that I was agreeing uh, to work on were these, 
had no social utility whatsoever. It was just, okay, let's build this web port, this nested web portal for a credit card rewards, elite credit card rewards members to bid on exclusive in-person experiences. Like that was probably one of the bigger jobs I had to date at the time. And so I had already been aware of um, names like Tristan Harris, Center for Humane Technology, um, you know, between, again, between my inner compass of this, this is, doesn't, this isn't doing anything like what I'm going out to build to help design has no utility whatsoever, except maybe for a limited group of people. And I went into UX because I wanted to, uh, you know, if I may be frank, and I hope, you know, using colorful language is not a big deal, but if it is, just no problem. Know, but <laughs> I mean, just going, going into these things, it's like here I became a parent. I, I left, you know, being the life of an artist and a musician, I was, I'm a bass player to, to kind of settle down to do something serious that can have a big impact on a lot of people. It's like, you know, doing these things why am I doing anything? It's to, it's not only to feel good, but to kind of like help unfuck the world basically is like, why, why do anything that's going to have a big impact? Mm-hmm. Um, so with that in mind, I recognize that a, what I was being hired to do, or I was being shoehorned. If you can, if you know the met, understand the metaphor where I was being kind of plugged into different project phases as a UX designer felt so, um, hallmark. It just really, the role wasn't really doing much of anything in terms of the marketplace. They were, you know, different project managers were just kind of plugging UX designers in at different stages of a project, maybe towards the end, just to spruce it up, just to say, Hey, we had a UX designer on this job. So it's legit, that kind of thing. And I don't want to sit here and sound like I'm really kind of judging or, <laughs> Or criticizing, um, you know, just on on its face. But um, I recognize that this doesn't have a long lifespan, at least for me um, personally, because uh, it was just a struggle. I mean, the freelance struggle was very real. And then the pandemic hit. And once the pandemic hit, it's like all you know, all races were open basically because pre-pandemic there was this immediate, very strange and bizarre kind of mafiosa situation where employers don't hire talent directly. They, they go through this middleman, which is the recruiter and the talent, uh, talent, talent farm slash recruiter agency. So I had to sign up to be in all these recruiter agencies right, five or six or seven of them, to then be a part of a roster of possible talent to match with employers' needs, right, up to the discretion of the recruiter. So that alone was already felt very unsafe uh, because you then become this part of this uh, Rolodex of talent that peep that, that employers can plug in or take out at their discretion in any whim. There's no more full-time work. There's no more benefits. Um, there's no more longevity. 
You know, it's like we can have people in for as little as two days or as long as two years as an independent contractor with no benefits. So that was already a scary scenario pre-pandemic. Then the pandemic hits and there's no more local marketplace. Now it's a global marketplace. And so then I immediately realized that because of, you know, platforms like Fiverr and Upwork and Indeed, I'm now competing with very talented uh, designers in every corner of the galaxy competing for the same carrot and we're underbidding each other to get the job. And so I, I just very much gave up uh, that, that pursuit, that struggle, that kind of rat race, so to speak, and really got very honest with myself and, and recognized that I'd already been kind of a, you know, a minimalist and uh, again, already been um, very much into the, into the philosophies coming out of the Center for Human Technology. I've been reading uh, Cal Newport, Yuval Noah Harari. Um, and the other thing, you know, just to touch on because it's part of my background and also why I got into digital well-being is through tea, through the fact that slow tea AKA are also known as, as Gong Fucha, which is uh, a Chinese ritualistic brewing methodology uh, that started in Fujian province of so Southeast China, um, has a really, really fascinating history. It's worth an entire conversation in and of itself. But I'd been a student of Chinese tea ceremony and Gong Fucha um, since 2009. So uh, and, and starting in 2010, I was um, pouring tea, uh, hosting tea workshops and tastings and tea ceremonies um, as an homage to what I'm continually learning Nice um, in person in Los Angeles, as well as when I travel. And I also started to do that in parallel with being a UX designer, again, as a proof of concept in terms of corporate wellness um, type of uh, projects you know, creating site-specific programming for startups or enterprises, um, doing this in-office retreat, if you will, saying we can have a team-building, mindfulness-oriented experience through the vehicle of tea ceremony that we don't have to fly people to a yoga retreat in Costa Rica or whatever. That's all nice, you know, but we can we can have a profound uh decompressing and sort of a digital detox experience in office together. And so I was doing that since 2016 in parallel with UX. Again, it came to a very, very real pause during the pandemic. And so taking those personas, those very real parts of my identity, um, you know, from the perspective of being a UX designer, from the perspective of being someone who is very into uh, mindfulness through tea. And just so I realized that, you know, digital well-being is something that people already need, but it's going to take a long time to come to come to that realization. But hmm. if I could start now, because it's the most helpful thing I can do, right? Yeah. Something that I can offer in terms of coaching. So that is my... <laughs> that's my like 15 minute long background, but that I hope that <laughs> begins to explain... Uh, how I got to this uh, this field. 
Most definitely. And I think a lot of people can relate with that. And they see this idea of, I like how you put it, you want to make the greatest impact. And so you're looking at, or you were looking at what you were doing and you were seeing that, hey, this is a little bit shallow. I am meant for more than this. And so you reached out and you started doing this, I love this word, digital resilience. And was there anything specific that made you choose digital resilience? Was it something out of all of the good deeds or deep impacting initiatives that you could have chosen? You went with digital resilience and digital well-being. Well, I think given given the time, I mean, given the set and setting, right? Given here in a pandemic, I'm not going to seek out to be a licensed therapist. I don't want to go that kind of academic route. I don't have enough time to invest or money to invest in that specific route, right? Uh, and then there's this coaching route, which is a bit more amorphous in the sense that you can, I can call myself a coach right now without being an accredited coach, or I can go through an accreditation or a certification process uh, and have that kind of credibility through, let's say the ICF, right? International Coaching Federation, uh, and call myself a coach and work with either individuals or groups, you know, on that basis. So it's kind of more in that realm. Um, it's still new for me in terms of I had found the Digital Wellness Institute um, with their parallel organization, the Digital Wellness Collective. And it seemed like a really honest and forthright group of people, like an honest organization with a certificate program, with a Slack channel with, you know, with some kind of infrastructure that felt uh, welcoming in the sense that, it, you know, it's a place that I can plug into and grow from. Again, not as an employee, just as, a, as an ally, as a partner, so to speak. So the certificate program was um, 10 or 12 weeks, and um, I finished that as of the end of 2020. And so this, this, you know, this path that I'm unfolding for myself as a as a digital resilience coach or speaker uh, is still rather new. I mean, I know that pandemic feels like an eternity, and between January and now has barely been four months. But it's <laughs> it you know it's somewhere in between those. Um, I just wanted to again the idea of being able to create content so that people can, can uh, you know, absorb that content at their, at their ideal pace or their ideal sort of time and space of, of leisure, whether it's make a video that people can watch later or perhaps make a, a course or workshop. Um, I, my podcast is very much a part of this as well. Um, and then there's, you know, panel discussions, clubhouse rooms, um, being able to be a guest on a podcast is, is another way of um, getting the word out and just, again, being able to have these conversations at scale because uh, 
you know, just recalling like what life was like as a freelance designer was like, it was basically existing in a vacuum. You're just trying to reach for resources and trying to get validation for I'm a designer and you should hire me and not them because of A, B, C, D, E. And it was just such a exhausting and morally vacuous experience that, you know, um, at this time of pandemic, it's, it's super important that we, uh, again, we keep communicating as opposed to just keep sharing and keep tapping into outrage and shock and trauma and so on and so forth. So, um, so I, I hope that answered the question. <laughs> yeah, and it brings up another question that I realize yes. you're taking advantage of this digital world that we live in to spread the message of digital wellness. Does it not feel a bit ironic or hypocritical at times? A thousand percent. Yeah, it does feel... I don't know if it's hypocritical it does. It definitely feels like comedic. I'd say comedic more than hypocritical in the sense that like I host clubhouse rooms and I have, you know, this groups of, you know, 40 to 700 people based on the room, the time of day, you know, the sort of intersection of time and day and time zone. And it's funny to speak about, um, digital habits and digital well-being and these, these sort of tips, these evidence-based strategies, maybe tools that people can use if they need to use tools as a form of accountability for their habits uh, in this kind of a space. Um, and so, you know, every time I engage or let's say facilitate a room, I'm always like, this room is going to be an hour max I don't want it to go, go beyond that. I don't want to perpetuate our own sort of novel uh, addiction to Clubhouse as a social media platform, which is an actual social experience within the scope of a pandemic. I mean, it's it's really funny. So there's definitely a lot of irony uh, in it, and you know, I'm I feel like I'm also working towards uh, destigmatizing. Um, what people may think of digital wellness when it comes to like, you know, the solution is not to use tech less or just to like get rid of it altogether. If you can move to the Scottish Highlands and just live on off grid on a farm, more power to you. That sounds amazing. But for the rest of us, um, it, I think it really behooves us to, again, not focus on using tech less or maybe just minimizing our screen time metrics, but to really find the ways in which we can use tech with intention, you know, use it mindfully. Always ask, put up a flag for yourself and say, wait, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Does it feel good? What's the outcome? It may not be those four questions. You may not give yourself five minutes to really think about it, but just to have this self-awareness process, you know, perhaps through, you know, emotional intelligence, playfulness, that kind of thing. There's a lot of different ways, depending on the, the individual or the group I'm, I'm able to work with or speak to. I mean, there's so many different ways to, to focus on this. Yeah, let's go into those a little bit because I have on my... My phone right here, when I open it up, 
I have only the front page as being a screen that I don't think you can see because, but it just, it's empty and it just says brief. Yeah. And that's one yeah. technique that I've found. And I also try and put everything in black and white to yeah. not addict myself as much. And these yeah. are just tips that I've heard over the years. Uh, we all obviously know probably to turn off your notifications and you won't have... I, I read a great article years back that I cannot remember for the life of me who wrote it or what it was called, but it essentially was a, a writer who I think purposely left their phone somewhere and went on a trip with only their iPad and they noticed how much they used their technology less. They used the iPad less because it wasn't in their pocket all the time and it wasn't... Right. Uh, they wouldn't go and whip it out. They went on a safari, I think, and they weren't going and being that guy that whips out the iPad and is taking pictures yeah. with the iPad. So there are tricks like this, but I'd love to hear more little tricks that you have and different nuances. There's something that I want to highlight before that. Uh, as you can see, I'm really good at asking a question and then, then changing directions. But the thing that I wanted to highlight from <laughs> what you said before was about how it's not, it's not on metrics. It's not only getting rid of your phone or using it less and having less metrics each week, which I think a lot of us can fall into that trap. And we can look at, especially when you see like the screen time and you see, oh, I, it's down this week. Well, yeah, I noticed that my screen time's down on my phone, but it's up on my computer and I don't get the metrics yes. on my computer. Or I don't look at them or whatever. But can you briefly mention and highlight the why it's not all about the metrics, it's more about intentionality? And then also, what are some tricks behind being more intentional? Yeah. So it's my own subjective uh, opinion <laughs> to not fall into the trap of metrics just for metrics sake, because I think the metrics as a construct will create this hamster wheel. And then we imbue, we, we, we impart feelings to the metrics and then we can choose to like feel like shit about the fact that we're using our screen too much, or my child is using this too much and all that stuff. So then again, I mean, I don't want to just say metrics are are bad. You know, they're very useful if you are looking to you know um, focus on you know increasing sleep time or better sleep. If you want to focus on counting calories or uh, you know blood oxygen levels, like oh, there's there's a lot of utility. Don't get me wrong; there's a ton of utility in generating metrics. Um, especially biometrics, you know, just as a form of self-awareness or self-actualization. But in a pandemic, we are relying, we as individuals, families, distributed organizations, teams, as, as teachers and students, as a society, we are relying so heavily on connectivity, right? On, on screen usage for social purposes. Uh, that it's it's um, it's really important to focus on you know quality versus quantity because uh, again you know we know at least most of us know perhaps 
perhaps most of your audience, you know, knows the listeners here that uh, we live in an attention economy. We know that when we use social media, you know, as a free platform, that we ourselves are the products. We know these things, you know, thanks to uh, these, you know, almost household names like Yuval Harari, uh, Tristan Harris, Center for Human Tech. And also most recently, I just read Kevin Roos's new book, Future Proof, which is, I highly recommend if you haven't read it yet, or at least listened to an audiobook version, is uh, phenomenal. It's totally in terms of, again, not just AI ethics, but um, <laughs> but like automation and and <clears throat> living in a pandemic, right? And sort of the risk of, of uh, your job, your white collar job, so to speak, being automated is amazing. Um, so yeah, I think I think that using tech with some kind of intention, with some kind of mindfulness is super important right now because uh, because we're in this, we're in our like hamster cages. You know, some of us are our friends in, I mean, here in the States, we seem to be faring a little bit better in this pandemic thanks to our vaccine rollout, but it seems as though we've sucked up the world's vaccines. Um, and yet our friends in Europe or many countries in Europe are not doing so well in terms of uh, vaccine output and thus in different stages of lockdowns and mitigating numbers and whatnot. And so the fact that we are at home still by some measure as a society means that we are looking in different ways to fill this void of uncertainty, fear, anxiety, boredom. Those are maybe the top four. Um, maybe hungry for knowledge, just hungry for being distracted. I don't want to be at home. I want to be outside at the pub or at the gym or whatever. And you can't do that for a very, for, you know, for, for varying reasons because due to the pandemic. And so it's so, it's become so easy, right? To just, I want to look at, I want a funny meme. I want to this. You may even not realize that you want it. I'm just sort of, I'm voicing it just for the, for the sake of, a, of the dramatization. But we know that out in the world with our phones, it's so easy to fragment our time and attention because it could be as little as five seconds or suddenly you're in a two-hour YouTube recommendation cycle. And it's like, what happened to that time? So I think that has become such a microcosm for, for us at home. Again, not just as individuals, maybe people who are single, but also in terms of, you know, family structures and whatnot. So um, there are a number of what I call like elegant obstacles that I like to offer to people that I work with. Um, in terms of for, uh, forming habits or creating resilient boundaries for ourselves while we are at home, uh, you know, with a sea of devices. You know, I myself, I think I had an Apple Watch at some point. I got rid of it. I had an iPad mini. I got rid of it. I didn't want further, <laughs> I didn't want further possibilities to fragment or just to create that desire to reach for that particular 
form factor. They're great form factors. We have an iPad mini that we use as a family and, and that our daughter, who's going to be six this summer, uses. We use it for, for our virtual kinder, um, for movies and shows, for FaceTime conversations and, uh, you know, and family dinners on Zoom and stuff like that. So there's a lot of utility with these devices. Again, I'm not saying don't have a smartwatch, that kind of thing. But if we allow, while we're at home, to just, again, like, like we do in the real world, right? Like we stand in the supermarket line and we just do this so we don't have to, we don't experience life in a supermarket. We don't want to connect with strangers nearby, maybe smile at each other or give a compliment or just that kind of small talk, right? It just engages these different parts of our minds or our brains that um, we've, we've not intentionally deprived ourselves of, but we've, again, coming from this place of like fear and uncertainty and anxiety and stress and burnout in a pandemic, we're not opting for those kinds of mundane life experiences. So we keep going into the devices when we're out in the world and very much so while we're at home. And so when I say creating elegant obstacles, I mean something I like to do during business hours that may be useful to the remote workers listening to this is to tether your phone to one spot in the house. It may be your office if you have an office in the house or maybe a desk or a table or a nightstand or a chair or something. Tether it, tether your phone, plug it in to charge and leave it in one spot in the house. And it creates a brilliant, elegant, obstacle for yourself so that you then you need to have an intention to reach for the phone because it's going to be in that one spot it's not going to be in your pocket or on your person when you're in the kitchen when you're in the bathroom when you're going into different rooms maybe when you're stepping outside to check your mail or something <clears throat> so that way you suddenly have a desire you have an intention oh i want to send uh dimitrios a text I want to ask him a question. So then I then have to have the desire, go from where I am in the house to the spot where the phone is, engage in the activity. And then when it's done, I'm not going to be stuck in that one spot in the house. I could put the phone down and go do something else or maybe go back to making my daughter lunch or that kind of thing. It 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 is this interesting kind of hackable way to, to basically engage in what we call digital minimalism or what Cal Newport the author of digital minimalism, you know, has, I guess he coined uh, the term, which as a tech philosophy, it is the, um, it's when someone purposely, purposefully engages in, you know, using tech less by way of having a set of intentions to use devices that, what is it? I'm, I'm, bung, I'm totally bungling this definition right now, but it's, <clears throat> it is uh, the means by which people are able to use, use a device uh, intentionally so that you perform the task or the activity you had set out in mind while you happily miss out on everything else. Mm -hmm. That's a really kind of messed up, <laughs> kind of a messed up 
and vague definition of it, but, but it makes sense. Um, it is uh, what I what I said in terms of the elegant obstacle. I think really speaks to um, the brilliance of of I guess of the philosophy you know in, in play. Um, you know, for some people, the term minimalist is also kind of pretentious and intimidating, and you know, what is it like in the same way that Marie Kondo, at least maybe here in the states, became this popular you know public. Uh, public figure through, you know, Netflix because of her philosophy of, you know, clearing your house of clutter that you're not, uh, doesn't give you joy. If each object doesn't give you joy, then it's, it should move on its way out of the house. And so, you know, some people, you know, for most people, it's like they don't have the time, space, bandwidth, or the, uh, maybe the emotional, uh, emotional, maybe the economical incentive to get rid of stuff just because it doesn't give them joy. They may need to hold on to things mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons, and that's fine. And so, but that philosophy of minimalism is useful in the digital space. I mean, you know, for some people, um, you know, just their desktops alone on their laptop, just their you know, when they turn on the computer, you may see this whole supermarket full of icons that immediately creates cognitive dissonance so that you are lost. You don't know what you want to do. You have, don't know what your intention was when you open your computer because you see like this PDF and this audio file and this thing and that thing. And it's it just, again, there is... There is wisdom in creating some order to the chaos. And so, you know, these sort of digital, digital minimalism in play, when I describe the elegant obstacles of tethering your phone, of creating phone-free zones at home, wherever possible. Obviously, it's based on negotiations, let's say, with your family. You know, here, it's the three of us with our six, you know, almost six-year-old daughter. If I can create the dining room table to be a phone free zone, then we can engage in eating a meal together that is more present, more playful, cracking jokes, whatever. Um, so that there isn't this pressing need of the device, having the device nearby or on my person, feeling a vibration. Um, you know, there's this one of these sort of commonplace phenomenons that we refer to within the vernacular of digital well-being is mere presence the mere presence of a phone statistically you know based on a lot of research will already distract you just having the phone nearby within your scope of vision will already make you feel like maybe someone's trying to reach me maybe there's a notification that came in you know those kinds of things so these kinds of again elegant obstacles phone free zones at home the bedroom is super I think is the most important one. If you can keep your bedroom or the bed device free um, and maybe sanctify the bed or the bedroom for sleep, sensuality, reading a book, you know, those meditating, maybe there's just those things um, will create this buffer of, of, of boundaries that you can have with the devices. Um, so that again, you use them with more intention versus I'm just going to use them less. Mm-hmm. It really just depends on how you want to approach um, what your goals may be if you if you have goals based on what kind of usage people want. But those are like some really loose 
tips, you know, that really don't cost anything in terms of like investing in a tool or an app. Those things are great too. We could talk about those as well. But just when it comes to like habit formation and sort of creating resiliency so that you have a, a buffer, you've, you've engaged in some kind of self-care or self-love, maybe a morning routine that lasts you know, five or 15 or 30 minutes while your phone is plugged in in that one place in the house charging so that you ready yourself. You've done nice things. You've brushed your teeth and had a glass of water and had breakfast with your, your husband or wife or partner or your children. And then comes whatever, 8.30, 9 o'clock, and then you can reach for the device and you're able to respond to things as opposed to just react to mm-hmm. the stress hormones that you know come with notifications and stuff. I find it interesting what you talk about with the tethering because I do that also. And that's another reason why I have on the phone, on the home screen, I don't have any apps on there so that Mm. when I look at that home screen, I have to know what I'm doing. It's not Mm -hmm. like I just click on a random app because it's right there. But yeah, I'm sure everyone listening can relate how many times it's happened to you where you have that thought where it's like, oh, yeah, I need to send so-and-so a message about XYZ. And then yeah. you walk to the place where your phone is tethered. You look at the phone, you open it up, and then you go, what was I doing here? Yeah. <laughs> or you want it, you, or you say, you know, just to play on your example, you wanted to send your friend a text. So you go to the phone, but then you pick it up and you see three notifications from yeah, you know, Twitter, you news, and an email. And then boom, you're just, you're in a different, an entirely different experience that you're then struggling to do the thing that you wanted to do versus, res, you know, responding or reacting in quick, you know, quick turnaround time, because this is the thing that we've exactly. agreed to as a society. We're going to respond to work-related emails within 70 seconds, right? We're going to respond to work-related emails after 11 p.m. And what is it? 50% of work of remote workers are responding to work-related emails after 11 p.m. Hmm. Maybe that's just here in the States, but... Well, as my it's, wife likes it's to intense. say, yeah, she tells me that I don't work from home. Now I live at work. And that's her her way of putting it for me. So I do notice that there is that that piece of it. And it is very easy to get caught up and just go down the spiral. And so what I wanted to ask you, though, is this idea of wanting to escape. It's like this escapism that we have with Mm -hmm. our phones or with technology or whatever it is. And you mentioned it briefly when you talked about sitting in the supermarket line or standing in the supermarket line or being wherever it is where you're waiting or you're, yeah. you're in between. Or at a red light in your car. Yeah. yeah. You're in between things and you just pick up the phone or you start messing around with technology because we can't sit still. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you have thoughts on that idea of just being with yourself instead of needing something to entertain you, even if it is for these two seconds in between a red light or while waiting at a supermarket, these different scenarios, I feel like, are the 
perfect opportunities for us to just take a deep breath. It's so mm -hmm. hard to remember to do that. And it's so easy to just grab the phone because of habits we formed maybe. Do you have any ways or tricks that keep you from grabbing the phone or keep you from using <laughs> tech in those scenarios? And if so, yeah. what are they? Yeah, it's, you know, I am, I am no saint. So I am also very transparent when I say that I'm guilty of engaging in those kinds of reflective, reflexive behaviors, sitting in my car at a red light uh, or in traffic, or perhaps even standing uh, in line at the supermarket. Um, <clears throat> as a parent, you know, there uh, you may see, I don't know if you're a parent or not, but I mean, you, you may have seen people, parents at playgrounds, they get to the play, they, they push the buggy or the stroller, they get to the playground, kids playing, okay, kids engaged, boom, device. I'm already right. I'm I'm disengaged from like my job as a parent to to entertain and protect and love you know the child. And again, no judgment on parents. I also have done this <clears throat> as well. But if we can, if you can afford to take a deep breath as opposed to just reach for information for the scope of fifteen or thirty seconds, right? If you can take a deep breath, if you can. If you maybe you can't take a deep breath, but you can just notice yourself wanting to do that. You know, that's another interesting uh, habit that we can form for ourselves is just to notice it coming. And then the desire goes because we have to engage in whatever. We have to get to the cashier. We have to push the accelerator and drive the car. If we can make space um, for just being in the moment. If we're at the playground, we're outside. Maybe there's a breeze, maybe there's leaves, there's a tree. If you can, in the same way that we, um, you know, will want to reach for the device to just quickly send a text or check an email, or there was a buzz that came in, and so I want to just see what came in so I can get that dopamine hit to respond to something that has come to me to, to, to demand my attention in that small unit of time. It's not going to go anywhere. It's still going to be there. But if you can take that moment, take a minute to just be where you are. Let's say we're the parent at the playground, just to be outside where we are at the playground. Just notice the noises, not noises, just notice like the, there's the joy of hearing playground sounds, laughter of running or footsteps, just to like, just to engage in some kind of sort of sense-oriented playfulness. If you can hear sounds, if you can feel yourself breathing, if you can feel a breeze on your skin or on your head, you know, I have a bald head, so I can definitely feel a lot, you know, I could feel a lot in terms of sensation. And if you could just engage, if you could, again, it's, it, it takes time to, to engage in the habit of just noticing so that you notice that desire of, I'm just going to reach for this thing to just, I need to respond to whatever. It may be a stressful thing. It may be just I'm bored and I want to just fill this vacuum of boredom. I think this whole like death of boredom 
is quite dangerous, actually, because as a as a species, <laughs> we've, I mean, we've invented everything. We've been creative. We've written poet poetry and thought of music or rhythms or art or like written, you know, a love note because we, because of that space of, of so-called boredom, mm. right? Yeah. We really do need time to just think and, and, you know, maybe just to lean on, again, Cal Newport's book, Digital Minimalism. One of the biggest points he brings up in that book is this, is this, you know, modern tech use as a means of, of, what he called refers to a solitude deprivation. We've deprived ourselves of solitude, boredom, um, thinking, reflecting, considering, right? Critical thinking. We've deprived ourselves of solitude because of our, either our, our individual desires for dopamine hits with devices, or maybe just as a, as a society, we just, this is what we do. We don't talk to strangers anymore. We stand in the supermarket and we look at our phones like a bunch of zombies because that's what we do. It's just normal, right? So, and a lot of the point, a lot of the stories that he brings up in the book when it comes to solitude deprivation is just, what's, what was it? Abraham Lincoln prided himself on like having a cabin separate from the White House so that he can go there and be free from distraction to decide on the issues of the day, right? Um, writers and musicians and authors and artists, you know, like they, they sanctify that so-called solitude because that's where creativity and inspiration comes from. So again, it's really hard to do in a pandemic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm aware of the, of the, of the, you know, irony of the situation. But when it comes to those elegant obstacles, there's more chance to, to, um, to create a little bit of solitude. You know, for some people who live their lives time boxing their day um, because they have really heavy schedules, I highly recommend blocking out 30 minutes to just call it question mark, leave it for boredom, inspiration whatever you want it to be. Maybe you could do something different every week, but just like time box that 30 minute in the week to just think about a decision you need to make or something, you know, don't just let it be another scroll of, you know, TikTok videos. Mm -hmm. Again, there's a lot of, there's a reason why we want to be entertained too. We don't want to just throw that away. But if we, if we can sanctify that solitude, you know, for some people who, are living alone, who are single, living alone in this pandemic, I don't want to lean so heavily on solitude. Maybe instead I would say, instead of scrolling through TikTok or Instagram to like something, reach out to a friend or family through a FaceTime call. Have an actual conversation. Even though we're talking to pixels, it's still a representation of that person that we love and care about, you know? Um, so... Yeah, without going, <laughs> without really going into the granular aspects of it. Those are just things that I wanted to mention in terms of that question. So as we're winding down, I wanted to ask you about 
this idea of detox and digital detox mm. and how you feel about those, if you practice any of them. I know I've heard some people, mm -hmm. they take a day out of the week or they take an afternoon out of the week. I've heard others who take the whole weekend off. Mm -hmm. Do you do any of that? I do a variation of it through my tea practice, right? My slow tea. For me, slow tea is my the most reliable portal into into a digital detox, and it's something that I can I can plug in to different parts of my day, or just to like once a day or something. Because for me, slow tea encompasses time, reverence, mindfulness, and just really to slow down because there's lots of small tools that are delicate and fragile that are imbued with lots of character or personality. And each tea experience is a profoundly unique experience, like a thumbprint or, or a tree. So that's my digital. That's my digital detox, which is really, at you know, at, at its core, was the proof of concept of doing tea as as a form of corporate wellness. For other people, they like taking, you know, it's like a, it's like a version of what, you know, um, of what uh, Judaism does in terms of a Sabbath, right? Take a day off. Mm -hmm. Take a day off. Turn the thing off engage in whatever go on a hike be outside go to the beach read a book play with your family like it could be any one of those things and it it takes willpower especially in a pandemic it takes a lot of willpower to to follow through with that you know mm -hmm. so or it could be any it could be any kind of negotiation that you may want to you know have with with your family or, or your loved one if you live you know with others at home during this pandemic it could be it could be the rule is you know no social media no emails but we'll like watch movies and programs you know on netflix or hbo or whatever mm -hmm. because it's a, it's a communal thing it's something we can engage in socially um i think there's a lot of uh, profound positive impact in some form of digital detox, but there is no one size fits all solution. It's yeah. going to be unique to every individual family or team or whatever, based on the needs in the moment, you know, uh, you know, what's his name? Uh, what was it? Walt Whitman, just one of these like, I, you know, iconic timeless authors is like, I'm, I am, going to travel by train and boat and get to this cabin that's that's off grid and just like be far away from everyone and be completely free of distraction receive no letters and no one's going to knock at my door so i can i can focus on whatever the craft or just to wait for inspiration again we can't do that in a pandemic mm -hmm. but we can we can constantly adjust right we are adaptable creatures right? We're resilient people. We can figure out ways to, to create a break or some kind of digital detox that may be just the scope of a meal, just to have a mindful meal, right? There will be one meal a day that you'll have, you know, during this pandemic at home, right? During, during the week where you, the, the, it's on air, the phone is on airplane mode, Nothing can reach you, but you can either be alone or with your family or loved ones and just have a meal hmm. and just to like be, just to savor it, to have it be this multi-sensory experience so that you can actually engage in smell and sight and touch and taste 
and time. Again, it takes willpower and a desire, even more than a desire, it takes curiosity to do that. And we can't have space for curiosity or inquisitiveness or just thinking if this is possible, if we're constantly responding or reacting or just seeking those dopamine hits. So it's finding finding the space, creating the space and building upon our own innate resiliency to just make a little bit of space, make a boundary with, with our devices so that we can engage in, in what makes us human, which is just kind of playful, inquisitive, tinkery. I mean, I engage in tea because it is a tinkering mm. hand and finger and eye coordinated thing. It, it I can't, have a phone while I'm pouring tea. It does require both my hands and all my attention. That's why I am committed to that as a ritual. And it works for me. It may not work for everyone. But if it could work for you, if you want it to be a mug and a and a bag, uh, you know, it could just be, I'm just going to focus on this mug and this tea bag for 20 minutes and watch how profound that cup of tea or coffee or juice or whatever smoothie will be when you just have your attention on that one thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had some friends that told me when they started getting into mindfulness that they started making their bed in a completely different way because of yeah. that idea. They brought all their attention, brought all their senses to the act of making the bed. And they discovered a whole new experience so I, mm-hmm. I completely agree with you on that. I also think I was going to mention, I think it was Thoreau, but we'll check who it was and we'll put it in the description. It was probably Thoreau. <laughs> I feel like that is a Thoreau kind of thing to say, what you were mentioning before about the yeah. writer who wanted to go off yeah. grid. He had that whole, he had the whole uh, shack on the lake, I think. And mm-hmm. so I've got one more question for you and then we're going to yes. call it quits. Adam, this has been... Absolutely amazing talking with you. I've learned a ton. And I want to know, are you a robot? I am. I am damn sure I'm not a robot. <laughs> but, but that's also why, why you know, I reached out and was so uh, curious and inquisitive to, to engage in a conversation with you because I love the tone uh, and the intent or even the curiosity behind the question. Hmm. So I really appreciate uh, you asking this question and and really in, and navigating that sea of ambiguity when it comes to just a lot of information and a lot of perspective and a lot of research and stuff. You know, when it comes to tech and ethics and AI and automation and and digital well-being, mm-hmm. the digital so, resilience. It's mm-hmm. super important. More important every day as we have come to find it is the pandemic that really made it clear for all of us, but it was always there, Mm -hmm. right? So I cannot thank you enough for coming on here. I really appreciate your perspective and the way that you're able to give me these little tips and tricks, some things that I had already been doing and you show me a new, the next stage of it. So thank you again. And I encourage everyone out there to jump into the digital resilience movement. I know that for myself, it has been very effective. 
in just the idea of intentionality behind using your tech and not letting your tech use you. Exactly. Yeah, just to ask yourself, at least at the very least, just to ask yourself, how does this make me feel? Do I feel good mm-hmm. when I use this or when I do this? So, uh, Dimitrios, thank you for having me. And I look forward to, um, you know, maybe the next chapter to this conversation. Exactly. Hopefully. Great. Yeah. We'll take care, Adam. You too.